I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Saturday, June 27th, 2020, and this is episode 74 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is that the climbing gym opens this week, Monday. When this podcast comes out, I will probably be at the climbing gym. So the rules are different. We have to sign up for special slots so they can make sure that the gym is only half full. We have to climb with masks. We can only use liquid chalk. There's going to be sanitizing stations. We can't use the locker rooms, all kinds of things. But I get to climb. And I know it's a risk. I know going to any gym is going to be a risk. But life is just better when I'm climbing. I think it will do a lot for my mental health, my physical health, my overall well-being to be able to do the thing that I love. So for that, I'm willing to take the risk. Um, I think it's, you know, a risk going probably anywhere. So we take the precautions that we can take. And, you know, Maryland is doing pretty well. It's not one of the states that's spiking. So I am optimistic. My husband's already been to his gym. Um, they opened last week, I think, when Maryland opened the gyms. And that one is a little bit more troubling because the, um, so I belong to that gym also. I belong to the climbing gym and what is like a bodybuilding, um, Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting gym. And so I feel like they're being a little bit more lax about things there. So I'll just go to the climbing gym where I know they're at least trying to keep things pretty safe, as safe as they can. And, uh, we'll see what happens if I ever go to the, the regular gym again. Anyway. Another cool thing that I saw is a new podcast called Octavia's Parables. I haven't listened to it yet, but apparently there are two women who are going to be rereading Parable of the Talents and Parable of the Sower. I get the order of those confused, Um, but chapter by chapter each week. Now, I know that those books are probably Octavia Butler's most well-known and maybe most loved books, along with Kindred. And like all of the ones that everyone else loves are my least favorites. Not to say I didn't like them because I don't dislike anything that I've ever read by her, but they're just not my favorites. And I've actually only read them once, all three of those books. So this might be a good time for me to reread the parables and um, try to follow along with the podcast. I might let them build up a few episodes because one chapter a week is really slow for me. (laughs) So I will put a link to it. And if you're interested in Octavia's parables, please do check that out. Writing update. I took this week off too. I was enjoying my break so much. I think I was enjoying it so much because I planned it. And it's not like those days when you don't write and you feel guilty about it and still that weight on your shoulders like, oh, I'm supposed to write, but I didn't know, but I'm taking a break, but I'm really guilty. It was just freedom. And uh, I was still enjoying the freedom. But that cannot last forever. So... Tomorrow, Sunday, I'm going to, I have a writing meeting set up with a friend of mine. We do it online and I'm going to really get back into it. I I have still been doing research this whole time. So I I haven't been writing any words, but I'm still doing the research for the heist story, Um, building those characters. That's going to last for a couple of months as I slowly try to figure out the plot. I need to dive back into the short story that I'm giving away as part of the pre-order giveaway for Cry of Middle and Bone. And I'm encountering some difficulties about the title of it. So if you're familiar with the Earthinger Chronicles, they're all 
you know, Song of Blood and Stone, Breath of Dust and Dawn, they've got the naming convention. And then the, the fourth novel, I purposefully changed it up a little bit. So it's Requiem of Silence. It's only three words. And I was like, oh yeah, no, it, it made sense to me. It felt right. The titles of those books are not easy to come up with. And I was talking about this last week in my mastermind because the short story was something that I, did, I decided pretty late to do. And I have to come up with a title for it. And so I was like, well, maybe it's just epilogue because technically it's the epilogue of Cry of Metal and Bone and Hush of Storm and Sorrow. It's, I, I do this to myself. I do this complicated things which make no sense, but you know, it's basically um, the end of that story. So I was like, well, what if I just call it epilogue? And my friends were like, you can't do that. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I don't have the energy to come up with another title, <laughs> something of something and something. And this is a short story. I don't know if it deserves the weight of that title, you know? <laughs> I feel like maybe it doesn't. And they were like, no, it does. You should make a title. So I'm still undecided about this. I've been brainstorming titles. The The scheme of the name is like a sound word. And then these other two words that are usually either natural forces or emotions or body parts or something. And maybe once I've written the story, it'll be easier I mean, I know what happens basically in the story, but I kind of am just feeling an internal pushback against giving something so short, like the weight of the name. But I also am feeling pushback about breaking the naming convention for a short story when I wanted to only break it for the last book in the series. You know, it might be something that I ask my Facebook group about and see, get some reader opinions because uh, struggling with that. So it's been a week. A lot has gone down in the publishing world. A lot. Like I'm recording this Saturday morning and who knows what's going to happen the rest of the weekend. I feel like I could say that every week about 2020. Yeah, a lot of, a lot. And more than I can address or even want to address. But I do want to talk about at least one of these things. So this week I saw a lot of conversations about who should be writing what Specifically, should white writers be writing from the perspective of characters of color? And at least in my feed, the prevailing opinion seems to be that they should not. And then there was this new story that just came out a couple of days ago about a white writer who decided to withdraw her book from publication because she was writing about the Geechee Gullah community uh, in South Carolina and Louisiana and a character who was descended from that and who was passing for white. And She'd been questioned by Black authors online about, was she the right person to tell the story? And eventually she decided she wasn't, and she pulled the book. So yeah, this is at the top of mind for a lot of people. So here are a few things that I, Leslie, believe. The publishing industry suffers from systemic racism, the way that all industries in the United States suffer from systemic racism. And I do believe that it is easier for a white writer writing characters of color to be published as opposed to an author of color writing about their own community. I think it's more palatable to big publishing. Um, I think publishing companies believe they'll make more money, that more readers will read and, you know, will buy and read these stories. So absolutely, I think there's an, enough evidence that that has been happening. Some things I don't believe. I don't believe that there should be any hard and fast rules about who can write what story. I also don't believe that because, say, um, a white author writes a book with Black characters, I don't believe that the existence of that takes anything away from me. 
I think that's scarcity mindset. So the two things can be true. Yes, it's true that they will find it easier to be published, but it's also true that um, I am also published and more and more black writers and all kinds of marginalized writers are being published. As a black woman who's experienced racism, I cannot allow racism to stop me from doing what I think that I'm meant to do. Like I know I'm not going to get every opportunity that I dream for and hope for. And I know that there are forces, systems in place that were put in place purposefully to hold me back. That is the reality of life. But if I, if I lived with the idea that, that someone else's good fortune or someone else's achievements take something away from me, how could I get anything done? That's a victim mentality. That's a scarcity mindset. And it's not how I was raised to react and to, um, to deal with a racist society. Like I was taught that if there's someone out there doing something, it's, if it's humanly possible to do and you want to do it, there's no reason you can't. No matter what it is, um, there's so many reasons why other people get things that, that you might want or desire. And there's so many reasons that might hold you back from that, but you can't allow that to stop you. So the reason that people are saying that uh, white people should not write from the perspective of characters of color, specifically not that they shouldn't write a wide range of characters, which obviously I think everybody should, but to be in that POV character's head and telling their story is that A, they probably won't do it right, and B, they'll get published more easily telling someone else's story. Both of those things are true. I... I could only think of one book by a white author that had a black woman POV character that I truly felt was really close to being authentic to the point where I had to actually go back and look and make sure that this author wasn't black because I'd read her before. And I was like, wait, have I missed this the whole time? Because that happens because she doesn't post her picture. Um, and I don't believe that she is black, but I felt that this character that she created was was really good. But that's very rare. Like most of the time, uh, I'm either vaguely annoyed by a POV character that's a black woman or ambivalent, you know, um, cause it's hard. It's hard to write outside of your experience and to capture that authenticity. There are whole, you know, movements and education towards educating people on writing characters who are not like them, um, characters from marginalized communities. There's books and classes and sensitivity readers that can help people achieve this. And, um, there was a tweet that I saw from the writing the other Twitter account who has a book and classes on this. And they were saying that, you know, they think it is possible, you know, to write outside of your own experience in a way that's not problematic, that it's a matter of craft. There's also a question about whether they should do that, which is more nuanced. So I really believe that to insist that people only write character point of view characters who match their lived experiences is very troubling. It's difficult. And it also leads us into a path that is even more troubling and difficult. It leads us to a path of thinking that any kind of marginalized community is monolithic, because if only people from that community can tell that story, it edges towards the idea that of a single narrative. And I know that's not the intent. And I know that nobody is actually saying that. But if you look at where the path leads it only leads one way. Like the whole point of writing fiction 
is to imagine. As a writer, I have to sink into the minds of people who are nothing like me because nobody else is exactly like me. Everybody on this planet has a different lived experience. And the truth is that within marginalized communities, there is significant disagreement about how to portray ourselves. My life as a Black woman is different than every other Black woman's life. My life as a medium brown-skinned person is different than a light-skinned Black woman and a dark-skinned Black woman. I grew up in the suburbs. My life is different than someone who grew up in a rural area or in the projects. Those are not my lived experiences. And I do not believe that the only characters available to me to write from are ones that match my experience. I know Black writers who get accused of their characters not being Black enough. As a person in the world, I've been accused of not being Black enough. And I know that that happens in other communities. This week, an article dropped about Rebecca Roanhorse, who's gotten a lot of criticism for um, from the Indigenous community. So she is half Native American, half Black. She writes Native American characters outside of, I'm going to use the word tribe because that's the word that I've seen used in the articles. Um Outside of her own tribe that she was born into, she married someone from the tribe in which she writes, and so she's been accepted by that community. Um, but there's been a lot of criticism about her. I believe the issue is sort of telling cultural secrets that are meant to be private, and Indigenous people are coming down on both sides of this. There's not agreement there, and I don't know the complexities of that culture, so I can't really speak to that, but just to say that within our own communities, there's very, there's often disagreement about how to be that thing, you know? Like, you know, I had a podcast where I called Clarence Thomas and Uncle Tom, and there was a, a listener, viewer who called me out on that. And I respect that, you know, like, to a certain degree, the whole notion of Uncle Tom is an aspect of policing Blackness. But I still maintain that people who are at actively out to harm their own community, actively out to harm the Black community. I think that term applies to them. So yeah, the question of harm becomes important in this discussion because I think the people who are proponents of this idea that, you know, right from your lived experience are coming from a place of believing that it's inherently harmful for um, two people of color, two marginalized people for, to have their stories told badly. And that also the idea that it's taking away opportunities for them to tell their own stories. We have this whole own voices movement, which is really powerful and important. And I absolutely believe erasure is harmful. Stereotypes, othering, all harmful. Um, you know, the effect that racism has on self-esteem and self-worth cannot be measured. You know, I had a professor in college who used to say that racism is a mental illness. And, and it might not be in the DSM, but it creates trauma. It's painful. There's, there's no way to describe it. And if you're, if you haven't been a recipient of that, if you haven't been steeped in that, then you don't understand the trauma and it's going to be very difficult for you to portray that. No question. But what experiences qualify you to tell a story. The whole idea of these kind of purity tests, are you Black enough? Are you in Native American enough? Are you queer enough to tell a story, even if it's your own? 
So if, if we can't agree on inside of communities who can tell stories, how can we then say that you're limiting, you know, that, that certain people are limited to telling their stories? Like, I remember Condoleezza Rice once claimed that she had never experienced racism, to which every Black person was like, huh? So let's say Condoleezza Rice, a Black woman, decides to write a book about a character who experiences racism, when she herself has said that she has not experienced it. But she's Black and ostensibly has the lived experience of a Black woman. I don't know. There's plenty of anti-Blackness that comes from Black people. All your skinfolk ain't your kinfolk. And uh, it's a slightly different argument, but it's all related. Like, because it begins, it's like a slippery slope. It begins a spiral of who can tell what story and how qualified are you? And can light-skinned people write about dark-skinned people? Can straight women write from the perspective of a gay man? Where does it end? If it never ends, I don't think it should begin. So I think we can all agree that someone with a lived experience will tell that story the best. I don't think there's a question about that. Let's also respect, though, that we are writers. And part of our job is to get outside of ourselves. Part of our job is to do the work, to become good enough at our craft, to be able to tell other stories. And in order to do that, there can't be people telling you what to write. The end goal of this whole thing sort of gets lost in these conversations. The end goal is that we all want a more equitable publishing industry. And I think that means that we, we shouldn't move the goalpost. We should focus on diversifying publishing. So we want it to not be true that white authors get published more easily. We want it to not be true that a white author's book about Black people will sell better with readers than a Black author's book about their own people. We want diversity with agents and editors and salespeople and everybody in the industry so that everyone can have their stories told the way they want them to be. And I don't think that there should be rules about that. I also know and believe that writers should take extreme care. You know, I've seen the question comes in about, well, what if you're writing, you know, people of color in a fantasy world? They're separated from the baggage of slavery and racism as it exists in our world. So I was recently asked to blurb a book by a white male uh, fantasy author who I'd heard of, but don't know personally, I've never had any interactions with. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Why was I asked to blurb this book? I figured it was because there were black characters in it. And so curiosity reigned. I'm like, well, I'll take a look at it. I'll see if I enjoy it. And sure enough, both main characters had dark brown skin in this book. But this was a second world fantasy where characters also had green hair and pink hair and all kinds of different colors of hair. I, I read the whole book. I ended up actually enjoying the story, but I did not blurb it because I didn't feel comfortable about it. Uh, I didn't like the fact that I felt that I had been chosen to sort of lend an air of legitimacy to this person writing these dark brown skinned characters. And it just made me uncomfortable. Whether or not that was the reality, that was my perception of it. And so that's how I chose to handle it. Would I have blurbed it if, if everyone had had a naturally occurring human hair color? I don't know. 
But the fact that they did not was a red flag for me. <laughs> it sort of put me in the mind of, oh, I'm not racist. I don't care if you're black or brown or yellow or green or purple. There are no green and purple people. So please stop saying that. It also brings to mind uh, an article that I saw on tour called Does Allegory Prevent Star Wars from Being Anti-Racist? And they referenced another article um, that the title of which is John Boyega is Doing What Star Wars Wouldn't. A franchise about resistance has repeatedly overlooked the Black experience. I think those are both really interesting reads. So this is a quote from the second essay talking about the Black characters in Star Wars. Um, and Janna is the character that was introduced in the last Star Wars movie. There's no time for Finn and Janna to bond over their identities, to share experiences with Lando Calrissian, to explore how young Black voices look toward movements of the past for guidance today. Finn, Janna, and Lando don't get to be Black. So that seems to be an argument for our current conception of Blackness, which is based on the echoes of the transatlantic slave trade to be portrayed more fully in these science fiction and fantasy worlds. And being critical when they're not. I think we can all agree that Finn was a very disappointing character in Star Wars. Janna left no impression, you know, one of the only black women in in the uh in the series, in the in the films. I mean, it was cool, I guess. I barely remember that movie because it was so terrible. But um are they they don't get to be black. I'm just having trouble with that. And it might be something that I have to think about some more. I think one of the great things about fantasy is that we can put black characters in there without the baggage of the transatlantic slave trade and tell stories that are not steeped in pain and activism. I have not necessarily done that, <laughs> but in a way, like, you know, I wanted to make sure in my books that there was a variety of things happening. You know, so I, I do have uh, racism and prejudice and stereotypes. And I do have love and adventure and magic. And I wanted to mix those together. I envision writing something with Black characters in some other world that has nothing to do with oppression. And that has nothing to do with um, Black pain and the legacy of that. And I think that's a good thing. I think stories like... Why should those be the only stories? Why is that the only way to be black? There's a quote in that essay that says, that says blackness is deeper than skin color. It's activism. In that regard, Finn isn't black, not to those in the world of Star Wars. Blackness is more than skin color. Is blackness activism? I mean, that's a good question to think about. Because initially my response is, does it have to be? Why? No. My my initial reaction to that is to equate black to Blackness with activism does not make any sense to me. But it is something that I'm going to think about. My initial pushback is very visceral. I think the I think that both articles are definitely worth a read. I don't know that I necessarily agree with either of them. Mainly because I disagree that I disagree that it is necessary to portray black pain and subjugation and the fight against oppression all the time. I imagine stories of Black people in space or in fantasy worlds that that don't have to deal with that are very refreshing and needed. 
So yeah, I would push back against the equation of blackness with activism. Why does everything have to be about our pain? I know that's not the only thing to write about. It's not the only thing I want to write about. These are just my opinions, looking at it as a semi-dispassionate observer, not overwhelmed by emotion, except for frustration at the short-sightedness that I see and and the problems kind of inherent in that assumption. It reminds me of many months ago when people, before RWA crashed and burned, when people were saying, um, kick the racists out of RWA. I'm like, yeah, that's great, but who gets to decide who's racist? Like, what are the criteria and who decides? These things tend to churn on themselves and eat themselves and go off in directions that you didn't want and you're not going to be happy with. So I just, I would prefer we focus on the goal. Let's diversify publishing. Let's make it more equitable, hire more diverse people in every level, and then let us tell our stories, publish our stories, buy our stories, read our stories. That is, that should be the goal. Nobody is writing perfect books. You know, there are no perfect people. And I would rather err on the side of letting people do what they want. And if there are consequences, then let them face the consequences. Then trying to restrict things and have that spiral and snowball into something that no one intended and nobody wants. I know that white people are out here trying to figure out how to be better allies. I don't know. I can't tell you that. <laughs> uh, but I do, you know, try to live my life by two main principles. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the idea that those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones or let he who was without sin cast the first stone. And I think that um, those things just make sense to me. That's how I live my life. I'm sure that some days I do better than others and some days I do worse. Those are my opinions. You may not agree. Feel free to disagree. I know a lot of people do, but uh, that's how I feel. And that is all for me for this week. I hope that you have a wonderful week. Fourth of July is this week. So happy fourth. Be safe and happy reading. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter to get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts. <laughs>